0: Hello and welcome to trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissen. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts.
1: Our fantastic expert guest this week is a returning guest to trigonometry, the first returning guest to trigonometry. She's a former advisor to US President and the founder of H-Robotics. Dr. Pippa Malmgren? I got it, right? She,
2: yeah, I guess. Welcome Excellent. back to Trigonometry.
1: <laughs> say so I guess, so I got it wrong. No,
2: you got it good. I got it good. good. All right. Look, well, it's l- Swedish. It's got too many consonants. Nobody can. Yeah,
1: I it. struggle, to be honest, yeah. but it's so great to have you back. We're really, really <laughs> pleased you've come back to talk to us. You're one of our absolutely favorite guests. <laughs> and for anyone who didn't watch the first interview, just remind everybody who you are, what's been your journey through life, kind of, you know, how are you, where you are? Now.
2: Oh, well, bottom line is, look, I'm an economist. So what I try to do is help shape economic policy by advising government. So uh, I'm currently a non-executive director of the British government on the Brexit and trade policy issues. I try to explain the economy by writing books and I got a new book coming out. Oh, well, it's right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll, be we'll be talking. New We'll be talking. And then I kind of got tired of just being an economist who talked about the world economy and decided to start building it. So I have a robotics company that I co-founded. As
1: you do. Yeah. No, as you do, exactly. And that's one of the reasons we want, well, there's loads of reasons we wanted to speak to you because last time we talked about all kinds of things. But there was a particular moment of I think about 40 minutes in when you just started talking about technology and Francis's head just started to explode a little bit and so did mine and we were just like we have to come back and talk about this for a good good portion of time uh, but before we get to that there is something that's been going on with Donald Trump recently that we just wanted to get your take on really? yeah <laughs> one yeah. or two things yeah uh, and obviously by the time this goes out a couple of weeks from now He might not be president anymore, right? That's a possibility. Is he going to be impeached, do you think? Is is that where this is going?
2: So, my dad served four presidents. I've served two presidents. I've grown up in this environment, and here's my instinct. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans want to have their fingerprints on an impeachment because it rips the nation apart. Mm. It is so devastating to the soul of the country, leaving aside how much people might hate the current president that you can't do it, you can't pull the trigger on that without you are gonna go down the drain too. And that's why everybody says, let's not do it. Let's get the prosecutor to do it. Prosecutors are supposed to do this. They love grabbing on to the ankle of a bad guy and then hauling him down to jails. Let him do the job. Mm-hmm. And so that was the plan. But Turns out, not so easy. And we've seen the Mueller investigation dragging on, not that many charges brought, to be fair, considering how much time. And I personally think the real game in town is not Mueller, it's Barbara Underwood, who is the state attorney general in New York. And they have been very aggressive, saying they are coming after the Trump family, the Trump companies. That matters, because you got to remember, in the Mueller case, Really, theoretically, the president can pardon everyone, including himself. So there's no teeth in it, whereas the state federal level—the state level is totally different from federal, and the president has zero capacity to pardon anyone. And the penalty for a New York state charge is not federal penitentiary. That's a white-collar prison with a golf course and tennis courts. New York State Penitentiary is almost not survivable for a white-collar criminal. So it's a complete—I it's, it's, mean, it's viewed in Washington as literally a death sentence. So this is the negotiating point, and that's why I tell everybody, watch Barbara Underwood.
1: Sounds lead, like a character the of House side. of Cards. Yeah. Well, yes, Barbara and this Underwood. is House of Cards. <laughs> yeah.
2: By the way, I met the guy who wrote House of Cards, and I said to him, I think that you're toning it down for the audience. And he goes, You're from Washington, D.C. And
1: I <laughs> went, I am.
2: And, then, and then he went, You're right, I am toning it down. Wow. So, you yeah. know, yeah. it's a tough town, Washington. So,
0: yeah. so, if you were Trump at this point, and I realize it's quite a. Quite a, a loaded okay, this is a leap into yeah. this man's
2: head. Yeah. Okay. Um,
0: would you be worried with everything that's going on? <laughs> Bear in mind, in terms of front, he almost, sees untu- he almost seems untouchable to the outside. Aye, because everybody else gets arrested, everybody else goes down, and he just carries on regardless.
2: He's got a lot of Teflon factor, just like Ronald Reagan, who I worked for as a kid right out of college. He also had incredible Teflon. He also had charm, which is absent in this case, but (laughs) at any rate, you know, who knows what's going on inside of Trump's head. I mean, we know a little more because of Bob Woodward's book, and he taped everything, um... I would say this, the way to think about Trump is he's con- he's a property guy who wants to win the deal and get the prize. So, you know, I've talked a lot about his interest in the North Korea deal. It's all about he he may not get the Nobel, but if we get resolution between North and South Korea, the leaders of those two countries are going to get the Nobel and he'll be basking in the aura of that. And for him, that's like totally worth it. I think that he's got all kinds of things like this, where he sees a prize. And as long as he gets those, then he feels like, "Ah, whatever, you can do what you like, but I'm going to win anyway. Uh, Including, you know, I would keep a little eye on any announcements out of the U.S. space station and NASA that we might even aim to do a moonshot during the Trump administration. And I know, amazing as that sounds, but that would be so up his alley mm. to create a... And what does he just announce? The Space Force. Mm. What is that a cover story for? Getting a man back up in space, or a woman maybe this time. This is the kind of thing he's thinking, I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna make history, and you can try to take me down. That's the way he thinks.
1: Hey, you know what? I, Ivanka I, I'm, I'm, in space. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I think most people would prefer him to be in space. But, uh, you, you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but I would love for him to get the Nobel Peace Prize just to see how badly everyone gets triggered by this. Yeah. I would love
2: yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, it would change the whole perception that of, would the, be funny. of the peace prize. But because, listen, your, your book
1: is about leadership, yeah. the Leadership Lab. What do you think is kind of happening with Donald Trump vis-a-vis this... Le- leadership like what's what's happening there why have we why has america opted for him and what's going on there
2: i have to say i just spent a month uh, in the u.s different parts of america and i mean i grew up in america i'm american mm-hmm. what i felt like was oh my god um kramer the television show on cnbc and shark tank that is how americans speak to each other That is normal dialogue now. That used to be just one television program that was kind of for people who were extreme. No, the whole country. What about this? You know, you want a newspaper. Do you have the money? I mean, it's literally this kind of attitude is really heavy on every, everybody wears it on their sleeve, the attitude. So I wonder, I'm like, he's kind of a creation of our own making in many respects because the whole country behaves like this now. What I also detect, and I think—and I've heard—the private polls that the politicians have, um, which are run by companies that are what they call purple—they're kind of not red, they're not um, blue, they're they're genuinely neutral—they're all showing that there's a massive backlash, but it's particularly female voters, and they don't care anymore about public policy stances. They care about having someone their children can watch without being embarrassed. Mm. It's literally like, don't even talk to me about public policy, politics, law, strategy. I want a person that my child can turn the television on, and I don't have to explain what they're saying. You know, And I think that this is one of the reasons we're seeing a record number of female and minority political candidates at every level of government. And they're starting to get voted in because people don't care that they don't have any experience. Ironically, the same motivation they had for electing Trump, which is, I don't care if they have experience. I want this guy to take the, ins- the government down from the inside— We have the exact same view, just now we want a different person to take it down from the inside. So the hostility of the public towards the federal government remains very, very high. And and I would argue it has been that way, because that was partly how Obama got elected, right? He was elected on a radical change mandate. And a lot of people felt he didn't deliver as much radical change as they wanted, so they went for something even more radical, in a sense. They may do the same again. And, by the way, I'll finish last thing is, you know, we have a long tradition of electing um, very outside candidates, right? Nobody ever heard of Bill Clinton two years before he became president. Nobody heard of Obama two yeah, years true. before he became yeah. president. The president I worked for, George W., was just like, don't be ridiculous, that's such an outside possibility, he'll never win. And then he wins. So I would put a lot of money on the person you never heard of right now. Wow. Amazing. And
0: would you say he's a good leader, Trump? what he does because I mean if you look at the figures
2: economically they're not doing too badly well I agree but this is, here's the question how much is because of the president
0: right according to him yeah all, well, of it. all of it. <laughs> it's mine
2: it's all mine and I touched everything is mine <laughs> well so every president to be fair gets to claim credit for the good stuff that happens during their watch and and they all do this you know, in my last book, you know, I wrote about how the economy was absolutely improving and exports would increase and foreign direct investment would increase and jobs were moving from China back to the U.S. That was years before uh, Trump came to office. So, the real issue, I think, is, yes, the economy is getting better. And that's a big problem in politics, because the Democrats now not only don't have a candidate they don't have a story. Right. The story used to be, the economy's up the creek, you gotta vote for me. Yeah. No, what are you gonna say now? Because yeah. the economy is not up the creek. And I think it's actually gonna keep getting stronger. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, th- I think I'm the only bull left in the entire financial markets, because everybody's like, the crash is coming. The crash is coming tomorrow. Really? Because we're not in that world. People are now saying the crash is coming. People are really genuinely prepared for a meltdown on an epic scale. Because we're
1: booming, therefore the bust is coming. It has to be,
2: because we've had had the longest bull run in history, so that can't last. And we've just seen fairly recently Amazon's valuation, the first company to hit a trillion dollar valuation. So most people think that's it, we're, we're at the top. I have the opposite view. I think the Amazon hitting a trillion is the beginning of a whole new era of valuations, that we we are in a whole new category. And that's partly because we still have $20 trillion from quantitative easing left in the system that now is coming off the sidelines because investors are going, wait a minute, inflation is definitely picking up. And we can see that now in the data. It's no longer that, you know, every time you go out for dinner, you're like, what? The steak costs what? You know, the wine costs more. I mean, everyone palpably knows prices are higher, but the data is now really reflecting that it's higher. So investors know you lose money every day that you have inflation, if you have cash. So they're going, uh, I gotta get out of cash. So what are they gonna get into? If you have inflation, you're not gonna buy bonds, so you're gonna buy equities, what they call private equity, which means private investment and private businesses, or hard assets like infrastructure. And, and all of those, guess what they do? They make the markets go higher. So I actually think that, that we should be preparing for several more years of stronger performance rather than a sudden crash.
1: So he's gonna get reelected?
2: Well, no, not necessarily because you can have the economy performing well and have so turned off the public, even in your own team. That everybody goes basta, enough. Has that happened Uncle. in
1: history of American elections? So,
2: I, I haven't gone back and done the numbers, but I would say it would be uh, it would be hugely exceptional to have a strong economy and get chucked out.. Right. But if you're hugely obnoxious, yeah. maybe <laughs> this is possible. So
1: well, it's just like uh, your former boss is a good example. I mean, the Iraq war was deeply unpopular. Same in, in, in Britain. Tony Blair was deeply unpopular for going into Iraq, but they both got reelected because the economy was doing well, right?
2: They did. And yeah. so the question is, is, is that decision about Iraq less offensive to people oh. than what Trump has d- done? It's kind of and sad in a no way, isn't and it? Yeah, and interestingly, maybe. Yeah. And what does that say about yeah. all of us right. and our interest in people affected by our own decisions? Right. These are powerful that's crazy things to consider. When you put it that
1: way, that is pretty crazy. I mean, you know, the war in Iraq killed at least uh, a million people.
2: I I know. Uh, so that's quite shocking. The other thing is it's very awkward. You know, a lot of Republicans like myself, we wanted someone who was going to, you know, push the establishment, shake it up a bit... Um, make government smaller, reduce taxes, hopefully rein in the spending. You know, we, we like this as libertarians, mm. but what we weren't really banking on was someone who would do it in such a way as to create enemies at every turn and send messages to the public that unless you're in my particular category or a second-class citizen, this is totally inconsistent with these... Core values that you're trying to promote individual freedoms versus centralized government. So now there's this awful situation that you got a lot of Republicans who are like, uh, "I like the philosophy, but I can't handle the delivery." Mm. Um, and I think this again is going to be really hard because now what I'm arguing is that we're going to have we're going to see a Republican go up against the president, and that is a very unusual thing. Has that ever It's it. I'm sure it has, but. It has, but, but it's usually a dead end. But on this yeah. occasion, maybe not. Right. Maybe not. And then I haven't got into the whole business of the real possibility that Trump doesn't run. He voluntarily doesn't run. He, he announces, I'm going to step down, but he'll never say step down. What he'll say is, I have bigger plans. Yeah. And my bigger plan is I am going to launch what they're calling TNN. It's the Trump version of CNN. It is the Trump platform that will have everything from reality TV to um, political talk shows to—I mean, literally, it will be TNN. And my guess is, if that's where he wants to go—I think he does want to go there. He was planning for that when he ran for the presidency. He didn't expect to win. He expected to use that to launch this thing. But I think he's probably already raised a good chunk of change to do that and wouldn't have a hard time raising money to do it if he leaves. And actually, the politicians on the left and the right might say, you know what, that would be an excellent solution, because then nobody has to pull the trigger on an impeachment. We bargain with them that if he goes, th- th- we don't prosecute him. The New York State Attorney General vaguely says, yeah, and then as soon as he's out, begins prosecution, because. They're not going to hold back. They're going to go for what they go for. But at least then the fight is private. Mm. It's not yeah. a public fight yeah. of the president in the Oval Office. It's a private fight of a former president about his businesses.
0: And Donald, if you're watching, we're massive fans, yeah. and we would love to be on <laughs> TNN.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he's watching. Me. Yeah, that's what's happening.
2: But but to be fair, the TNN thing. Don't forget. There's a huge component of the American public who do think in this way mm. and will like what he's doing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and you can see that his, his, his popularity approval, you know, it, it remains like 48, 48 percent, 48 percent, no matter what happens. And so we can't be too dismissive of that side. They're real and they're not going to go away. Mm.
1: Uh, let's move on to technology. You've yeah. got a whole chapter in your book uh, which talks about that. Yeah. And like I said last time, we were absolutely fascinated by it. And you know what I was thinking? You and I met two years ago at Kilcanomics in mm-hmm. Ireland, doing and comedy. Well, yeah, Who's I that? was doing. Co- well, <laughs> you, you were doing the same thing. I was doing comedy, and <clears throat> we were ch- chatting in the bar after one of, our, of the shows that we were on. And uh, you were telling me about this new thing in China, where they're going to have this system, where they're going to track everybody's behavior and all this stuff. And I'll be honest with you, Pippa, I really like you, but I was sitting there listening to you going, she's a little bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) She could be a little bit crazy. Maybe she smoked a lot of weed when she was... Really? Yes. That's so interesting. Yeah. I was sitting there. And then a year later... Boom. It's happened. It's real. And... That's what you were talking to us about last time you were on the show. What the hell is going on and what, what, what's to come? Because now I believe you. Thank you.
2: Okay, so let's just quickly go through what is already real. Right. If you jaywalk in not all of China, they've only rolled it out in one city, but they're going to roll it out nationally. If you jaywalk... It clocks that you've done it because the cameras are ubiquitous now. So the facial recognition is incredibly strong. They have the most valuable artificial intelligence startup in the world, in fact, the most valuable startup in the world, called SenseTime. And it can recognize an individual out of a crowd of 10,000. And it can recognize your emotional state at any given time. So it clocks. It's you, and particularly you. Next thing you know, you pick your mobile phone up, and the fine for having jaywalked is already in your text messages, if not already deducted from your bank account, and your name and or your government number is already broadcast on the OLED screen that's above the intersection, the nearest intersection. So you've now been broadcast to everyone nearby that you are bad and you just violated the law. Now, this is important because what it does is it affects your effectively personal Uber score. The, the social credit system is based on the idea that you're a, a given a score which reflects your social compliance. So if you Google stuff that they don't want you looking at, your score goes down. If your brother or your sister does it, your score goes down. right? Because Mao always said the the best eyes and watchers, or it's not the government, is to get everybody to report on each other. And this is kind of a—I mean, the Stasi would love this system. But it's bigger than that. Uh, Within the last few weeks, it's been announced that when you tap, swipe, and pinch on your mobile device, it's a better indicator of who you are than your thumbprint. So now, even if you're using someone else's phone, they know it's you triangulate that with the way you walk, it turns out your walking gait is also a better indicator of who you are than your thumbprint. So what, what they're doing is taking all these things and triangulating. Uh, think about it as previously independent silos of data. Now they triangulate using artificial intelligence to pull it all together. But it goes even deeper than that, um, and uh, recently they arrested someone at a rock concert of like sixty thousand people because again, the face went by one camera, bang at clocks. this is person is wanted, and they went to the person 's seat con- you know the debit card, yep, the ticket yep they 're arrested. I think they now have eleven million people who are you can buy a train ticket or a plane ticket, but you can 't board it they won 't permit you so effectively. To go outside. You wherever you are no no. so they're putting or you into digital digital prisons so i think one of the um spouses of one of the dissenters uh, she's like locked into a very small few block area around her house and anytime she tries to move beyond it the officials are alerted and the police will be right there so she literally is stuck in a in a digital prison This is basically what the technology permits, and it rewards you if you do things that are supportive of what government's interested in, and it basically penalizes you if you don't. We're doing the same thing in the West. It's just it's not government that's doing it. We have private entities that do it. We have Facebook that does it. We have Amazon that does it. We have Uber that does it. Um, And I don't know if you saw, but there's been an announcement that there's been a deal between, um, it seems, Google and Uh, MasterCard so now if I go to you know I don't know a department store and I buy this color lipstick Google's gonna know and now they know what they're gonna advertise to me so I'm concerned about this and I write a lot about this in my book because Imagine what we've got. It's a world where you are emitting data points about yourself all the time without even knowing it because you've turned all the fitness apps off on your phone, but the fact is, the way you walk is revealing a lot about you, including, by the way, your your cardiac condition. A lot about your health is revealed by how you walk. So this multiplicity of data points that you're throwing off, but you don't know who gets to see it. But whoever does get to see it, they know more about you than you know about yourself. And by the way, it's a two-way thing. If I'm a chief executive and I go on, let's say, this program, and I start talking about my company and I'm lying, this same facial recognition technology can identify your microfacial movements, and they know that you're lying, and they can set the algorithms to short the stock of your company as you're talking on, say, CNBC Squawk Box. So think of it as almost like a crystal ball of data points And on the one side, it will let us conjure forth answers that will do things like solve cancer, literally. We will solve extraordinarily difficult problems by having all this data. But it also changes the balance of power between companies and customers because companies will have so much information, that I've argued, you know, we used to have insider trading laws. We may need insider trading laws. Mm -hmm. If I am MasterCard now or Google, my knowledge of you is so great. Forget Cambridge Analytica. They only had 5,000 data points on 81 million people, and that was enough to begin to influence your political position. I can tell you way more than a political position. If I have more than that, I can tell you a refrigerator. I can tell you anything I want. So I think human beings are very vulnerable to this kind of power being exercised. And similarly, what kind of world do we have if people don't know how they appear? And is there should we have a right to know how do we look with that data um, slice looking at us at any given time. So in the book, I've uh, tried to lay this out because we have a lot of leaders who are making decisions about the landscape of our future who don't understand what I'm saying. And right. so they're, they're, they're literally missing a profound shift in humanity. Well, this is the future.
1: I mean, this, this is this the is future of of us, right? This is
2: now. It's not even the future. This is nothing I'm not telling you is for the future. It is already existing right now.
0: Jesus Christ. I'm never smoking weed again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You won't need to. (laughs) (laughs) So,
0: I mean, joking aside, but then that literally means if you are being tracked of every single second of every day, if they're reading what you were doing, if they can manipulate you, is that the end of free will? Eventually?
2: This is the... this. So, what's really interesting to me is when I was in college, I studied political philosophy, and everyone went, oh, my God, you will never get a job. I mean, you are permanently unemployed if you stay." Now we get to this, and I'm like, these are questions of political philosophy. That's exactly what this is. This is about the balance of power between states and citizens, companies and customers, uh, between citizens. Uh, It's about... uh, the the invasion of a person's free will absolutely these are all core questions now they're they're not tangential anymore and i and the more we develop artificial intelligence the greater it's going to be for example um i know a guy who's building an extraordinary company um it is effectively going to place chips, which are so small that that they can fit inside the body they are at the level or it's, they're below the level of atoms right you're basically in the you're into the level of you can see someone's atomic structure their nuke their dna their um, cellular structure and their organs because it just they float around in your body at the nano level so that means the good news is when you get cancer, you get proteins in advance of the cancer, which now we don't detect very well, but then you'll be able to say, you're building up proteins, we see it coming, we can hit this thing, and you'll never get cancer. But the bad news is, you're emitting information about what is physically happening to you to whoever has access to that data. Again, the good news is that we'll create a kind of um he calls it a cure chain, the guy who founded it, Steve Papermaster. Like blockchain, it's a cure chain. We'll be able to cure many obscure diseases that only a few people have that right now aren't worth fixing, but with that you can fix it easily. But talk about privacy. I mean, the healthcare companies will know more about your health than you will ever know about your own health. So yes, these are really profound philosophical questions
1: well here's the thing is it's not just health as well because uh, we had an evolutionary psychologist on the show a few weeks back i don't know if you caught that episode uh, diana flashman and one of the things she was talking about is genetic studies the study of genetics is now coming to a point where we can pretty confidently say that there's a very strong genetic component to behavior yes right so if you can analyze people at that level and their dna and their genetics you're not just going to be able to tell what disease they might develop or whatever you're going to be able to tell what their personality type is to some extent, what their choices are gonna be, what their political leanings are gonna be. It would make s- dating really easy.
2: <laughs> that would actually make dating much yeah. easier. Yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Imagine Tinder. <laughs> da, 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 da. No, I want a left-leaning. No, I can say uh, you're good for three dates and then you're good, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're good for a one-night stand. Yeah, <laughs> I think yes. you're missing. You're the a key driver. Driver. Yeah. yeah, I think you but, guys are really
1: missing the point. Yeah, but, but,
2: but you know what? Remember Minority Report, and there right. was that idea of uh, pre-crime, pre-crime. Yeah. that Yeah, is already real in China. They are already using the artificial intelligence in conjunction with this extraordinary data sweep, and they are determining which people look more inclined to cut corners than others, and then to start corralling them into a corner and putting pressure to behave better. That's today. That's not maybe someday. We already see this in motion. So again, this is a huge philosophical question. Is this question of prejudging, precognition, premeditation? Where do we draw these lines? I ended up going back and reading a book, which actually I actually have to really strongly recommend. Actually, an author um, called uh, Norbert Wiener and a guy called Manuel Delanda, but Norbert Wiener, who wrote uh, a book called *The Human Use of Human Beings*. And it's a profound book he wrote in the late 1940s. And he's the guy who came up with this uh, word, cybernetics, which means the interface between humans and machines. Mm-hmm. So 1949, he's writing about how we're going to have this interface, and even assuming that machinery will begin to enter our bodies, which already it is. Uh, but that this will be, this conversation between humans and machines is going to be central to our society. It's so beautifully written, it's so clear, it's so absent of jargon or anything, and it's a wonderful baseline. For anybody who's interested in this subject, I would say go back and read Norbert Wiener. It's very short. He 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 was considered the father of modern artificial intelligence, and and that's where we got to go back to, start at the beginning.
0: And do you think it's, the, the way we're moving, I know it's a very broad question, but do you think it's positive on the whole, or do you think this is actually quite worrying and we're we're heading to a dystopia.
2: I am very positive. My leaning is positive. Uh, I think that all this uh, innovation, artificial intelligence, automation and robotics are fundamentally going to solve many more problems than they create. But the problems they create are very serious. So it's a bit like cars, you know, I think cars are marvelous and can they kill? Thousands of people every year, yes, they can. So, you know, you wouldn't, we don't say, okay, anybody can vent any kind of car they want and just put it on the road. No, we have rules of the road, right? We have manufacturing standards, we have health and safety, and we've gotten better at it, right? When I was a kid, they just dates me, but you know, we didn't even, we didn't have seat belts, we didn't have airbags, you know, the seats weren't even fixed, they used to just flop back and forth. We just thought (laughs) that was normal, you know? So now we have airbags and seat belts. That's a very good thing. We're going to have airbags and seat belts for the robotic era, too, for sure. But so I definitely lean on the side that this is hugely beneficial to society. And I think it's massively democratizing, because it's putting power in the hands of people who haven't had it before. And everybody always argues with me and says, "Well, you gotta have a PhD from Stanford or Berkeley in order to even play in this game." And I say, "No, that's not true any longer." I was recently at a really cool event held um, by uh, the Founders Forum called "Accelerate Her," and it was about promoting women in robotics and business. And um, anyway, fascinating woman there who had was into fashion, fashion blogging but never was able to make any money out of it. And she, create, she basically just used apps that you create on your phone and created an app that lets fashion bloggers all over the world actually sell the product they're writing about through their app. So they get a little piece. They get to take, I don't know, whatever, 10%, 5%, Suddenly, you've got women all over the world that tend to be women—women women who are making half a million bucks a year from their Instagram account just sitting and playing on it because the technology has empowered this. Right. So it's not the story that the, the, the insiders have a lock on this anymore. It's becoming ubiquitous, and I think that's a super beneficial thing to society. So then it's a race between the citizen and the state. Who's got that information, and how is it permitted to be used?
1: Well, my concern would be the recent stuff that we've seen, Francis, like uh, Facebook and Twitter. You know, they have not come out well of recent uh, news stories about them. And you look at, you know, Donald Trump got laughed at when he said that Twitter and Facebook is biased or whatever but actually then twitter came out and said, and yeah. said yes
2: yes we are yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah we, are, biased. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. are and we're going to just shut down the accounts of those people that we don't like yes yeah. which, which they're doing well i yeah so this raises to me a really interesting question about why is it we only have one facebook why why don't we have more competition we which, why do we have those monopoly positions in these social media arenas it's very interesting. I, I'm not sure I have an answer as to why.
1: Well, that currency is the ubiquity, isn't it? Like, everyone is on it. That's what makes it face But Facebook. why
2: is it that so few of them, and, and they, they all serve kind of very different purposes, so they tend to have monopolies over the space that they're in. Yeah. Where are the competitors? This is super interesting to me, why it's harder to create competition in this tech space than it is if it's a grocery store on the corner, hmm. but it seems to be. But I do think all of these things, for me, it changes the landscape of of leadership and I by that I'm speaking very broadly I don't just mean political leaders and business leaders even religious and community leaders I mean all of us have to kind of think about what is the same and what's changed and so what I've argued here with my co-author Chris Lewis is some things have profoundly changed. So one of them is, we used to, in the 20th century, the answer was always in drilling down into greater quantitative detail. Because somewhere in there, there'd be some a black box, and that's where your answer was. Actually, that didn't really work out so well. And the financial crisis, I would say, arose in large part because of this approach. Now in the 21st century, okay, you can drill down if you want, but the answer resides in the look across. Not the analytical thinking, but the parenthetical thinking, this connecting the dots between the silos, seeing the whole landscape. Or another way of putting it is, we used to be all about measuring the math. What are the numbers? Give me the data points. Now it's equally important, or maybe more so, to understand the mood that the facts and the feelings are very different things. And I know I will get a lot of pushback, because people say, well, you can't analyze feelings. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, you can when you get voted in or out of office. And you feel it when your customers turn on you for no reason that you can quantify, but everybody knows. So it's about using not only your head, but all the parts, your left brain and your right brain, and really joined up thinking, and also including in your thought process, what's the heart aspect? Because that's the part, when I talk about technology, it's not your intellect that twists so much, you're like, your heart, because you're like, but what happens to individuals? What happens to people, right? That's your heart speaking. And so the book is very much about we need a lot more heart in our leadership. We need a lot more joined up thinking. And also, I know it sounds really corny, but leadership in the 20th century was all about the leader it was the cult of the leader, it was the Jack Welch, you know, it was one infallible leader, kind of the Jesus Christ model of of management. Now it's about the ship. It's about the team. It's about the organization. It's about bottom up, not top down. And a lot of our leaders today have no idea how to manage in that environment. They don't think inclusively. So if there's anything, the core message of the book is, we need much more diversity of thinking. Mm. And diversity of people is critical to that. And I'm hugely supportive that we have much, much more diversity of people. And I don't just mean gender, although that's a big push in the book, but I mean ethnicity, income background, neuroplasticity, how your brain is wired up. I mean. Really diversity of experience, but you can still have a room full of people who all look very different who go, Trump will never win. Mm. Then you have a problem. So one of the things leaders need to do is to stop focusing on prediction, because if you say Trump will never happen, that's a prediction, and instead get focused on preparedness for things that sound way out there, and and use scenarios to test your robustness and your your agility
0: I was just going to say if we just move on a little bit to virtual reality um, I was at a comedy club uh, uh, playing this comedy club, and one of the guys working there is sort of a graduate and um, he was saying that actually in a few years' time comedy clubs will become obsolete, bar you know bars will become ob- well obsolete, and that this will all go into the virtual environment can you see, is that a reality or do you think people will always need to be sitting in a room together? and having that emotional and physical
2: connection. Buckle your seatbelt. (laughs) Because I work in this space, because with my robotics company, you know, we're making drones, commercial drones. One of the ways we deliver the information is through virtual reality. So our clients can put on goggles and then walk through an asset that's on the other side of the world. So if you had an avalanche at a mining site, suddenly you could be inside that mining site and viscerally feel it as opposed to watching a video in a two dimension. So I spent a lot of time in this space and it is so realistic, the brain cannot distinguish between real and virtual. I recently did a new virtual reality game, and it was like in a big warehouse. And I know I'm standing on a flat floor in a big warehouse, and there's nothing to bump into. And yet, at one point, I am like on the 157th floor of a building that has been blown out by explosives, and I have to cross a rickety bridge. And I'm literally like, <laughs> and then I'm going, don't be an idiot. It's a floor. You're in a building. But your brain is going, you might fall. You might fall. It is so realistic. And now the real kicker, we're starting to get haptics. And this is, what, this is a word everybody should look up and know. Haptics are items of clothing that permit feeling from a remote location. Mm-hmm. So haptic gloves, people are familiar with haptic gloves, so you can grab things in a a video game by going like this. But now we're getting full-body haptics. So let's say I go on a virtual reality boxing program. When the guy in Tokyo who's playing the game at midnight and I'm sitting here in London, when we go against each other in that boxing ring and he hits me in the solar plexus, I'm going to feel that because the haptic thing that I'm wearing is going to give me that punch. Now, I may be able to choose that I only want to feel one-tenth of what he's throwing, (laughs) right? I I could do that, but it'll all be scored. And because the internet is a scoring mechanism, which is actually one of my political philosophy questions is, do we want to live in a world where we're all being scored all the time? Because where is there any place for... You know, beauty, I mean, how do you... Wow, you guys, they do score beauty, which I just find incredible. You know, the women, one out of ten, like... You know what I mean, though. Beauty is not a thing that can happen on a numerical scale. And so, this business of moving into a world where everything is scored and then marry that up with haptics and virtual reality, you're gonna have people who are gonna go, I gotta have full force. I don't know if you saw the Spielberg film, um, Ready Player One? It is super worth watching. It is our first time that we really are shown what living in a virtual reality world is going to look and feel like. And at one point, the main character is in this situation, and, he, and, and his friends say, turn it down so you don't feel the full blow. And he goes, no, oh, I'm a real guy. And so he sets his outfit to feel whatever the other player is throwing at him. The point is, people are going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And put it another way, the Germans recently developed a really interesting virtual reality chair. Basically sits on bungee ropes that are attached to the sides of the room so that when you sit in the chair with your goggles on, not only will you see the VR world, but you're going to feel the actual g-forces now. You will be moving. And I took one look at that, and I went, that chair? Someone's going to have a heart attack in that chair because mm. the brain can't tell the difference right. They're going to step off the edge of the building in the VR and then the chair is going to go woof, and that guy is going to have a heart attack.
1: It's like the matrix the matrix your mind makes it real and yeah. then yeah.
2: In fact, we've even been talking with um, the Red Cross about torture and the need to have a new Geneva Convention on torture because if if I am given these VR goggles and and I'm a victim of torture. Well, if what I see is that someone's just cut my hand off, my brain is gonna process as if that injury is real. Mm -hmm. You won't be able to, and if you touch me when when that happens on my screen, my brain will know something has happened, they visually see what's happened, the brain starts responding to that. So I, I think this waterboarding will have nothing On what this can bring and equally even things that seem innocent the fact that this is what Spielberg shows in that film Ready Player One that you can enter alternative worlds and live there and just stay there you don't ever have to come back into reality and again a big message we have in the book we looked at all the research what's happening is people are in theory, more connected because of the internet, but in practice, there's less and less conversation, less and less human connectedness, and virtual reality and augmented reality take you to an even greater level of disconnectedness. And create a world where you think that certain things are normal that are not at all normal in real life, because what's created in a virtual reality world is it's comics, it's, it's pictures and it's drawings, but they're so real that you start to believe that's the standard. I want that in my life.
1: But I do wonder, I mean, with your question, Francis, right, about will people stop coming to comedy clubs or will comedy clubs stop existing? I mean, right now, you can pay £30 or whatever it is for Netflix or Mm -hmm. even less a month, right? And you can watch uh, a Netflix special from the best comedian in the world, whoever you think that is, for that amount. Or you can go to your local comedy night and pay that same amount twice a month, right, to go and see some far inferior comedians, by comparison, in person. And there are loads and loads of people... I I run a comedy club where I live, right? People will come and do that. So do you think maybe we sometimes we we kind of overestimate the... the, Or maybe underestimate people's desire to be physically doing something... ...physically present with others, physically connected in a space... ...that is without screens, that is without that thing? Where it's just right, you're right there in that moment. I, just- I
2: think there, there's a market for both. Mm -hmm. And I think humans will be doing both. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's not one or the other. Like, one thing that uh, I'm working on right now is being able to bring augmented reality to the audiences that I speak to when Mm -hmm. I do my public speaking. And you guys will be doing the same at some stage. You'll be able to say to the audience, if you pick your phone up and point it at the stage, I'm going to show you something. Mm -hmm. And standing next to you on the stage is suddenly going to be a Pokemon-type thing that you've chosen, an example of something that's in your comedy routine Mm -hmm. and now you guys are creating an augmented reality experience for that audience so it's not either or it's going to merge more and more but also it's a different level of risk watch if i decide to come watch you guys live of course this is an extremely risky thing for me to do (laughs) but but there's a certain level of risk that you might mess up Right. Or you might surprise me because right. the mood in that audience that night creates a different energy level in you guys yeah. than right because your routine changes depending on the audience right versus going to watch it on a, in a, that kind of VR landscape might actually be. It's more like watching a, a pre-programmed thing. So the level of risk that it might screw up yeah. is much lower or different. Yeah. So it depends what your risk appetite is. Mm-hmm. And you'll measure that on any given day and decide what's the right venue to express that risk appetite. But what I do think is it's gonna become so mainstream that it'll reach the point where you start Finding it hard to distinguish one from the other in the same way that robotics and automation will be increasingly inside of us and it'll be hard to distinguish between a person who's 100% human and a person who's not. We're kind of already there as well. I mean, it's
0: also going to impact on people's mental health. Yeah, big time. Because, like you said, you know, you're going to go into these virtual reality worlds where, you know, in a sense, there are no consequences for your actions. You can always, you know, get to the end of the game, start again, whatever else. And then once you get into real life, the, the rules are completely different. Totally. And when it comes as well, you know, when things between, you know, relationships, sex, all the rest of it,
2: so in the book, we talk at some length about the fact that an ever larger proportion, and now it looks like in some industrialized, industrialized countries, it's heading towards 15% of males under the age of 25 have never had a relationship mm. because they live so much online or are in a position where they can avoid the human interaction that they do. which means they have no capacity to negotiate with other human beings because you have to learn that. You have to learn how to negotiate with other human beings. We're seeing record numbers of elderly people— I shouldn't say elderly. Let's say older people, people over the age of 40— who are not, nice. yeah, yeah, la, la, I, I don't even need to get to elderly. People over the age of 40 are not living together right, if you're anymore.
1: over the age of 40, you're elderly.
2: Don't say bye-bye. I'm in that. <laughs> but even people over the age of 40 are not living together right. any longer. They, are, they, are not sh- they may share a roof, yeah. but they don't share a life. They're not with a partner. Right. They're in a rent-share space. Yeah. And those numbers are going up. So the real human consequences of all this technology seems to be that it is separating us from one another. It's, it's ironic, but that is what we're finding as the result. And this is a profound change in the society. We talk about it being it's an atomization that the people becoming more and more isolated, yeah. and they don't identify uh, you know, with, with larger groups. They feel alone and isolated, and maybe that helps account for the rise of identity politics. Kind of, it feeds off of that sense of, I'm alone, I'm not connected. So how weird, you're, you're uber-connected and simultaneously disconnected.
1: And are there any remedies to this on a personal level? Like, as like, is there something you do as a human being to kind of plug yourself back into reality in this?
2: Yeah. Um, So yeah. And isn't it interesting that all the magnates in Silicon Valley don't let their kids have mobile devices? I mean how interesting is that (laughs) you know uh how interesting i've heard so many of these people who work on the these tech products say basically we're using all the techniques you use to entice gamblers yes that's what's your phone so yeah maybe we need to learn how to turn stuff off switch off actually have a conversation and yes that is one of the things that we recommend uh that taking the problem is people are so impatient so they don't want to that that's just painful for them they won't even wait two seconds if a page doesn't load on the web in two seconds they're gone Hmm. so one of the things we have to figure out is how to cultivate patience Hmm. Um, there there are lots of these things but but the societal impact is is quite profound actually there's a there's a section if I could be really boring there's one page um, page 228. Uh, We made a list of all the things that have profoundly changed. So this is about the whole landscape, not just technology. Technology feeds this. But it used to be, we talked, the good used to be we the people. Now it's me the people. We used to like thoughtful, clear, measured responses. Now it's Twitter at speed. It's jargon. It's emojis. It's compressed information. Um, We used to like to study. Now it's all hacks and shortcuts. Mm. Uh, We used to like saving. Now we like spending. We used to dress up. Now we dress down. There's a a whole swing. It's almost like, you know, when Alice in Wonderland drinks and she goes through that looking glass and she's ended up on the other side of reality. Mm. Technology has done this. And I think we should be aware of this list of what it's doing to us, which is, you know, much more profound than just put your phone down a little bit. Mm. OK, yeah, but we have to learn how we're going to deal with a world where, you know, free speech has been replaced by political correctness. Mm. These are super profound societal changes.
0: And do you think this technology is encouraging a narcissistic behavior in people?
2: Sure, absolutely. I, I mean, it's the, the rise of the selfie is only possible because of the camera. Uh, and, and that sense of that's we the people? No, me the people is a person with the selfie stick. And so, yeah, technology that's part of being atomized, that we're not connected anymore. It's me and only me. And how do I look?
0: There's a question I've always wanted. I, every time, whenever I speak to you, I always got—I can't believe I forgot to ask that question. You know when you go on Google and you go, you know what? I could—I need some new trainers. And Google's uh, an advert for trainers comes up. Are they really listening, well, or is that slight paranoia?
2: Well, well, we like I said, it's now in the public domain. The Google and Mastercard have a relationship and a, and a, some kind of information sharing is what's implied.
1: Pippa, sorry, I think what Francis means is your phone literally picking up what you say and then processing it in that way.
2: Well, the answer is it's perfectly capable of doing so, and many other internet things, devices in your home and in your life are doing it as well. So, for example, the, uh, you know, Amazon Echo, it's already been subpoenaed in a murder trial as a witness. And, of course, (laughs) <laughs> the two of you guys are like, "Whoa, yeah, and by the way, it's a very good witness It's a highly reliable witness, well, absolutely you because know? it's not you
0: know it doesn't it distort, no bias. yeah it yeah. doesn't distort
2: the memory in any shape or form and I have to say the story I love was the guy who uh thought he was being really clever and left his mobile phone at somebody else's house, mm. drove to his house, set the thing on fire, and then um you know petrol." And gasoline everywhere and thought he was in the clear because he just wanted to get the insurance money and he forgot he had a pacemaker and the pacemaker was broadcasting not only his location but what was happening to his heartbeat as he was setting his house on fire. So this thing is you are constantly emitting data. Back to my point, you may not even know how you're emitting it. In Sweden, companies have recently introduced microchipping the employees in the thumb And amazingly, a lot of the employees in some of these companies are like, I'd love to do that because I don't want to have to pay for my coffee. I just want to wave my hand and I'm done. It's like magic. Yes, but guess what? Now you're like on the grid and everything you do is on the grid. So the answer is you should assume that any Internet of Things device that is in your world is perfectly capable of broadcasting not only your voice, but your physical movement within the space. Vacuum cleaners, automated vacuum cleaners are broadcasting the dimensions of the room and the human use of that space. It seems in this family, they come in to watch television at 4.45. So if you want to advertise spaghetti to these people, 4 o'clock might be a good time to hit that little reminder for them. So, yeah, this is the point. I mean, again, with social media, the bottom line is if you're not paying for it, you are the product. Yeah.
1: This is why I love doing the show. We talk about all kinds of stuff on here about men and women, feminism, everything. But fundamentally, what I love is, is when we do an interview. And I kind of go, okay, there's some things I need to do differently in my life. You know, like we had Diana Flashman on. Mm-hmm. She talked, among other things, she was talking about veganism. And mm-hmm. she was saying that actually it's very difficult to be vegan. Therefore, that if you want to reduce the quantity of suffering that you cause and the number of deaths, you've got to start eating the biggest possible animal. Does that make sense? Because yeah. there's like a year's worth of meat in a cow.
2: yes.
1: And if you eat chicken, you're going to basically be killing another creature every couple of days. Mm-hmm. So I pretty much don't eat chicken now after that conversation. I eat you know, beef and whales and whatever.
0: You're such a good person constantly. I am,
1: it, mate. That's, that's me. I'm woke as hell. <laughs> I'm so woke I can't sleep. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's what I love about it. this. is like It's fascinating, it's terrifying. I think it, it is absolutely terrifying, what you're talking about. Uh, it's also very encouraging that there's going to be this... The ability to resolve all these problems, to fix the cancer, whatever else. But I mean, I, I just think we've got to be really careful. I also think, you know, there's an element there. There is a part of me that's going, yeah, but we're still, we still have that need for personal contact. We still, there's going to be some kind of pushback against all of this. There's going to be some kind of feeling like, you know what? Actually, no, we want to get together. We want to be physically in the same. F-. Like, look at us. People will listen to an yeah, hour's yeah. interview i mean we talk about you know this kind of bite size everything is now shorter attention spans but actually there's a massive pushback against that now there are people we've we interviewed some people who do youtube videos they don't even show their face it's just a guy talking for 40 minutes yeah and is is not lo- and he's not even like doing kind of comedy like little bit of setup punchline it's just a guy talking for 40 minutes and I, people I, love I hear it. you and I, that
2: guy's got a million subscribers and i i totally agree i think there's a market for these things but but this idea that we're automatically jumping to that end? I don't know. One of the really tricky parts of the book, your guys are going to laugh. We actually talked about one kind of robotics and automation called teledildonics. Yes. And, oh, yes, it's the worse than you think.
1: Extending your penis remotely, is that?
2: Basically. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, people are having sex using devices where someone you've never met on the other side of the world is controlling what happens. Like, we are moving both directions simultaneously. I know, I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. I was amazed the publisher let us put it in there. But <laughs> but it's a real phenomena, like a real phenomena. You know, Elon Musk actually, now he's losing the plot. But at any rate, I, at one point, not so long ago, um, uh, he, he said he was in some kind of artificial intelligence product that he'd been introduced to, and obviously it's something nobody else has seen yet. And he basically said, this is a, the thing I experienced was something to do with love. Mm. Not sex, mm. but love. Mm. And so you don't know, is he talking about some kind of a sex doll, or is he talking about an interface with a computer? I don't know. But what he said was, it was so much better than the real thing, that it's terrifying, and it's going to be the end of humanity. Yeah. And and I have to say, this is a thing we really have to think about. What are our basic human needs, and how do they get met? You remember that film with... Um, Joaquin Phoenix, I think it was, where he falls in love with yes, his artificial him. intelligence who had Scarlett Johansson's voice, I think it was, Yeah, right? But he literally begins to fall in love because the, the AI knows the answers and knows him so well, and at the very end, is he's completely shocked that someone who knows him so well can just abandon him. Because you feel the involvement, and so again we're back to f- political philosophy. How do, how do we handle this? Because we're vulnerable. Yeah. Human beings are vulnerable. So
1: the sex realm. I mean, it's quite. There's. This is what Diana Flashman told us. There's quite a big difference between men and women in terms of kind of sexual no preference. Way. Yeah. Right. No, that's sexist. <laughs> I know. So she's she's talking about the fact that men basically. They have less disgust when it comes to the sexual domain, so that means men, as we all know, tend to be more adventurous and more kind of mm-hmm. right. So if you're a man in this new brave new world, and there's stuff that you want to do, sexually, you're
2: like, right, right, right?
1: Well, why would I? Why would I meet a real woman and have to like negotiate yeah, stuff yeah, and, and, and like dinner. you know, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and but not even dinner, but like I can do what I want as opposed yes. to what we both agreed to do, right? And all this other stuff. And yeah, why would you meet a real woman in that situation right? I mean theoretically at least yeah, yeah. that 's kind of where this is headed
2: no i, I and although this seems like like a, a narrow thing we 're sidelining into this is so fundamental you say the human condition. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a writer who I think is really interesting, uh, like a California guru, uh, called David Data. And he writes, about, he writes about sex and what makes sex really good. And he says there are really three kinds of relationships. There's the one where one person is saying, I want. Mm. and that's what you just described mm. i want and they're all about imposing what they want they mm-hmm. just need another person to do it yeah. then there's the i want but i know you do too so let's negotiate right and it's transactional even right. if it's elegantly transactional yes. it's still i'll take you out to dinner if da da, da, da you know but the but love love is i choose to love and it's unconditional and and my interest in loving you is for your individuation as a human being. You know, that's how do we get more of that when we're in this environment? That's a really interesting question. And at the, in this book we kind of we dance a little around it, but we kind of say really good leadership has love. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just sounds so corny as to be ridiculous. But in the context of what we're saying, you begin to understand love, the care for the well-being of other human beings now is a fundamental issue for all of us. We have to think about what's happening to people with a heartfelt perspective.
0: But doesn't it also come down to gratification and instant gratification? Because if you go into a computer game, you can be a black belt martial artist. In four different disciplines just by switching it on but the reality is in life if you want to be that that takes what 15 20 years constant discipline eating right and the same with love love is incredibly hard it means going and meeting lots of different people involves rejection and then you know it involves compromise maybe for you mate (laughs) maybe for you (laughs) 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 you. (laughs) 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 Ah, you yeah I did I did I did I did did. 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 (laughs) yeah I did but it's 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 sure, yeah, it's because life, let's, it's fucking hard.
2: And Well, and, and not only that, but again, virtual reality world, it's really interesting because now there have been computer games where you have people who are winning who don't fit what that model is, so you could have... Uh, A 50-year-old African-American woman emerges as the champion in a virtual reality world, where in a physical world, she wouldn't win that fight, Mm. but she can win it online. Mm. So, so, and in virtual reality. And the other thing is, you know about the marshmallow test? No. No. So I think it was Harvard University, but I can't remember. But anyway, the marshmallow test was they took little kids five, six years old, and said, uh, and left them alone in a room and said, if you don't touch the marshmallow, we'll give you three. Yeah. And they left them for 20 minutes. Mm. And the ones who weren't able to wait 20 minutes and ate the marshmallow versus the ones who waited, the ones who waited had much better human skills, an easier life, they had higher achievement levels. The people who can't wait, their achievement levels are not good. Their empathy and capacity for connection is not good. We need better performance on the marshmallow test as a race. Humanity needs to do better at the marshmallow test. And the problem is all the technology is pushing us in the other direction. So how do we make choices that balance it out? Because otherwise we may end up in a, you know, you said is a dystopian. We could end up in a dystopian place, but I don't see that we have to, but we could.
1: Well, on the subject of impatience, our time, I'm afraid, is up. Oh. So uh, coming back, as always, to our final question, what is something that we're not talking about? We've talked about all kinds of interesting things today. Uh, what is something that we are not talking about that we ought to be talking about?
2: Oh, well, gosh, so I should should ask me at this beginning because then I wouldn't have thought about it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, t- I still think... All of the stuff we've talked about just now, we're not talking about. Uh, yeah. we're, we're not talking, I think, look, in my world, in financial markets and stuff, really everybody is just preparing for catastrophe all the time. Yeah. And I don't think we're talking enough about, what about if all of this technology, all this stuff works, and we end up in a world where we can solve the any food shortages? I already know technology that can do this, so I think we're there. Um, how do we deal in a world that doesn't have any scarcity? It has ubiquity. That's a really interesting question. And I think we're moving towards a ubiquity world more than a scarcity world, um, but with all the problems that we've talked about. So to me, that's the interesting thing we're not talking about, a ubiquitous world, not a scarce one.
1: All right. Well, if you've still not left the internet after that, (laughs) not destroyed all your mobile devices in one big house fire, uh, follow uh, Dr. Pippa Malmgren on Twitter at Dr. Pippa M. Buy her book, The Leadership Lab, uh, which is coming out on October 4th.
2: October 4th in the UK and the 28th in the US.
1: 28th of October in the US. Get the book, it's gonna be fantastic. And um, as always, follow us at TriggerPod on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Obviously subscribe to this YouTube channel if you're watching it and uh, click that bell button right next to the subscribe button, which makes sure that you get the videos as they come out and you get notified. Anything else, Francis? Yeah, don't smoke weed whilst you're watching this episode. <laughs> you it know, is. I feel like I need to smoke some weed just to calm down after, yeah. after the yeah. mind-blowing of this yeah. episode. Yeah. Listen, P- Pippa, it's been so great to have you. Thank oh, you so much exactly for coming guys. on. Yeah, it's been an absolute been pleasure. pleasure. Brilliant. Yes. All right. See you next week, guys. Thank Take care. Thank you. Bye.